As Michelle said last night, I'd like to talk tonight about the quality of mudita, or sympathetic joy, or appreciative joy, which is considered to be a very rare and beautiful quality of mind. If you think about somebody in your life who exhibits this quality, who is truly happy when you are happy, think how remarkable that feels, that This person doesn't relate with envy or withdrawal or pulling back, but they take active delight in your happiness. We think about somebody like that, we just get flooded with a sense of respect and appreciation for them. We know that if we grow happier, they will grow happier for us. And that this doesn't have to have any limit or boundary. It's a very beautiful quality and it's very rare. It has many characteristics that I'd like to speak about tonight. One of these that defines some of the nature of sympathetic joy or mudita is the sense of being non-judgmental. Perhaps right there we have the key as to why it's so rare. (laughs) As we look around us, we may see people on a certain path or people who are experiencing happiness in a way that is different from the way we ourselves have chosen to live our lives. They may be walking a different path. People may be finding happiness in things that would not bring us personally much happiness at all. But can we feel joy and delight for them in their choices, in the choices that they make? Can we feel growing delight as their happiness grows in whatever way it has come to be. Sometimes people who make the personal choice to live very, very simply, very austerely, in doing this practice, make a conscious effort to extend sympathetic joy towards those who choose to live more comfortably. And sometimes those who make a certain choice of lifestyle choose to practice sympathetic joy towards those who make a different choice. Sometimes there are people who know that for themselves they don't want to have families or they don't want to have children. They practice sympathetic joy for those who do have children and are experiencing happiness in that way and vice versa. This isn't the same as the times in life that we go along And we think that we're happy, but really we're not. We're really creating unhappiness for ourselves or for others. There is a certain element or aspect of discernment which is very wise as we look at our own behavior and look at others. It's not just a question of being giddy and being happy without having any kind of wisdom or insight. Sometimes we might have the feeling that If somebody thinks they're happy, even though they seem miserable, then we should be delighted for them. But it's not that. It's really saying that we don't have to impose our standards on people if they are genuinely happy in their choice of lifestyle and if they're not hurting themselves and they're not hurting others. Then it implies a kind of generosity on our parts to not be limited by opinions and views, needing other people to conform to our expectations. Can we be happy? 
for them in their choices. This aspect of being non-judgmental is not so easy. And we all know that. Perhaps it is one of the reasons that of these four qualities of metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, sympathetic joy is said to be the most difficult of all of them to develop. Perhaps this is why. It is rather common and far easier in some ways to go around thinking that people should behave just as we want them to and to extend to them only as long as they do that. They should find the lifestyle and the source of their happiness in ways that we deem appropriate. And if we walk around with that mindset, it is not so very happy, it's not so very easy to be happy for people because the thing that we see is that people are very contrary. They basically do what they want to do, regardless of our desires. It is much easier to feel disgruntled and to feel annoyed because people are not meeting our expectations. And just one other element of this attribute of being non-judgmental is to have a great flexibility in mind and an ability to let go or to be detached from the feeling of being right. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of giving somebody some advice in a way that turned out to be wrong or incorrect, or you offer an opinion that turns out to be completely wrong. For example, say that you know somebody who's about to go someplace on vacation, and you predict a very unhappy time for them. You say, well, you know, I wouldn't go there if I were you. If you go there, it's probably not going to turn out so well, and it'll be this and that, and you know, you'll have gone to all the trouble of doing it, and you're not going to have a very good time. So I would suggest you go to this other place. But in fact, this person goes to the point of their original destination, and they have a wonderful time, one of the best times in their whole life. So can we let go of having given them that little bit of advice and simply feel happy for them. Feel and even be able to express our delight in the fact that they had a good time. How many times in a day are we actually wrong about something? It could be a lot. And if we see that somebody has not followed our advice and has acted in some way contrary to what we recommend or what we predict, And in fact, they're very happy. Can we let go enough to feel delight for their happiness? How wonderful. If that delight itself could be our priority, more than that sense of being right or righteous. Another aspect of sympathetic joy is a sense of non-comparison. This is using comparison in the very classical sense that it's used in the Buddhist psychology when they talk about the mind state of conceit. Conceit is a quality in Buddhist psychology that uses comparison to decide basically who we are 
to decide our own self-worth. We decide that, we try to discern our own happiness by looking at other people. And what is so interesting, even amazing, about this quality of conceit is that it doesn't matter what we conclude. We may look at somebody and decide that they're better than we are, or we may look at them and decide that they're worse than we are. Or we might look at them and decide that we're equal to them. And it doesn't matter. Because it's that actual movement of the mind in the comparing that is the source of suffering. Because it's so restless, it's so uneasy. To look outside of ourselves for a sense of who we are is bound to be suffering. And that is that quality of conceit or comparison. It's this gnawing restlessness One thing that we see about it is that it doesn't come to an end. It's one of those qualities or mind states which in and of itself doesn't have the capacity to come to a natural end or place of cessation or rest. It will never bring us to peace because there's no end to the possibilities of comparison. If you think, for example, just about sitting here in this room, the obvious way one would try to compare oneself is the question, who is the better yogi or the better meditator? So you might come in and sit down, and you notice that the person who is your target person is not moving, while you yourself feel rather restless. So the first conclusion might be, well, I'm not as good as that person over there. You know, they're sitting so still and I feel so fidgety and so restless. I'm not as good as they are. But then you notice somebody else and that person's moving and you haven't moved yet. And you think, oh, good. They moved before I did, so I'm better than they are. Then it would be possible to start having this nagging doubt, like, well, maybe that person sat the last sitting, sat all the way through the walking, and is just now moving in the middle of the second sitting. They've been sitting here for over two hours. Oh, I'm not as good as they are. Or maybe somebody new comes into the course, and having already determined one's status relative to every other person here, all of a sudden there's somebody new. You think, oh no, what does this mean? You know, are they moving? What are they doing? It doesn't end. It can't come to an end in and of itself. It's not the kind of mind state that will suddenly stop causing suffering for us unless we learn how to remove ourselves from it. With sympathetic joy, we also are looking at people's experience. We're looking at others but not with this kind of anxiety. You know, who am I in reference to them? Am I happy? Am I good enough in comparison to them? We're not trying to find ourselves in that way. We're simply taking delight as we see others' happiness. We're not looking to see if we deserve to be happy by looking at others' happiness. But rather, we're standing somewhat confident in that we're able to look at other people's situations and be happy for them. 
The Buddha once said, in a battle, the winners and the losers both lose. He went on to say that this was so because the losers of a battle lose in all of the obvious ways. They may lose their property, they may lose family members, they suffer very clearly. They lose power. But the winners also lose because what happens in winning the battle is that people come to hate them, people fear them, they plot to overthrow them. Their hold upon power is very, very tenuous. And it could well be just a question of time before things turn around and they're once again out of power. Those who were once winners become losers. Then there are issues of revenge. It's all of that fear and all of that tension. So what we really have to do to develop this mind state of sympathetic joy is to take ourselves out of that way of relating to stop relating in that sense of winning and losing and comparing, of being in a battle all the time, either feeling vanquished and defeated or feeling a very, very tenuous and shaky hold on power. Because if we're in either of those mind states, we will lose. Sometimes in the scriptures, they use this example of a kind of monkey trap which existed in Asia, which was just to spread a patch of tar on the ground. The monkey comes along and steps on the tar, and it's quite sticky. One little monkey foot gets stuck there, and in order order to try to leave, to free itself, the monkey puts down another foot, which also gets stuck. And then it puts down one paw, and then the other paw, Finally, the monkey, in a very desperate effort to free itself, puts down its head. That is a very stuck monkey. If that monkey just had one foot in the tar and could somehow reach out and grab a tree, reach out for something else, not the tar itself, and pull itself away, it would be free. But by putting down one foot, and then another paw, and then another paw, and then its head, to try to get leverage, it's getting itself completely stuck. This is what is talked about in terms of getting free from comparison. Not just doing it one more time, but really looking at things in a very different way. Breaking free from that battle. Trying to find out who we are in relationship to others is very, very sticky and it's not a way that will come to happiness. Another aspect or quality which is connected with mudita is learning to let go of a kind of exclusivity. As the quality of sympathetic joy grows, it grows not only towards those whom we like, and this is very hard sometimes, In our lives, it's very easy to feel anger when somebody that we love experiences loss or they experience blame, somebody's blaming them, or they experience conflict somehow, they're in trouble. It's very easy to feel anger at those times. But another time when it's easy to feel anger is when someone that we don't like experiences prosperity. 
they experience gain, or they experience praise, or they experience happiness in our lives. If you think for a moment about having to sit in a room with somebody that you don't like and hear a lot of people just heaping praise upon them, it's irritating. It's terribly irritating and annoying to be in a situation like that. The hostility, the anger, could come up very easily. But could you just imagine the possibility of being in that room and feeling some joy that this person is experiencing happiness? And in fact, compassion is often our gateway to sympathetic joy in this the sense of being able to expand it, to extend it, to making it boundless. Because we need to consider the fact that certainly everybody does suffer. And we have this person that we don't like. Do we truly want them to experience only more and more and more suffering? Should they only have blame in their lives? Should they only have pain in increasing amounts in their lives? Do we want to wish that for them until the day that they die or the day that we die? Is that how we want to die? What would that mean in terms of our lives to carry that in terms of how we feel? So we use the power of compassion to open, to continually open, so we can move more towards boundlessness, just to be able to feel happy that someone is experiencing happiness. The root of the word mudita means to be pleased, to have a sense of gladness. And it's defined as being non-demeaning. What that means is that we can look at someone's achievements or someone's attainments or someone's happiness and we don't wish that it decrease. We don't wish that it get less. We don't wish that it diminishes or that it falls in order for us to feel better about our own situation. We don't wish that it decrease so that we feel better about what we've attained. If we have that view, may you be a little less happy so that I can be a little more confident and comfortable in my own situation, then from that perspective, which is not so uncommon, or in that vision of things, happiness is really a somewhat limited resource or commodity. The more someone else has, the less there is for us. We can feel this not just with material things or objects, but we can also feel this with qualities like love and faith and caring. We can resent how much faith somebody has because we feel we cannot have as much, as though there were only a certain amount in the world to go around. We become trapped in this way by definitions of our own making, as though there really was this little stockpile of something like love somewhere. The more someone else has, the less that we have. If we have that vision of life, then certainly we can see why it's easy to feel resentful, to feel embittered, because basically we feel that we're competing for everything good in life, whether material or spiritual. The good things of life are either fixed and static, or they're actually diminishing. They're eroding all of the time. They're not replenishing. They're not growing. But in fact, this is not so. 
It's a very interesting practice in the classical tradition of Buddhism, which I think we've talked about a little bit here on the retreat, which is the practice of sharing merit. Merit being the force or the quality that gets born and grows in an act of goodness. When we are generous in some way, there's a power in that. There's almost a palpable energy when we give something, when we give of our time, when we serve, when we care, when we meditate, when we're willing to come to a place like this, to leave aside the things of the world that can distract us so easily, when we get quiet, when we offer something of ourselves, when we concentrate, all of these are meritorious actions. It's not so much a sense that there's a warehouse somewhere where our chips are piling up, but it's realizing the fact that there is a power in our actions, that it has, it has an effect, even an energetic effect. There's a genuine force or strength in that. The practice of sharing merit is when we have done something that is good, we've done something out of love, or we've meditated, something in that way, and we feel the energy of that, then we dedicate that energy. We offer it to others, either to all beings or somebody who has died, actually, is a very traditional thing to do. It being believed in many Buddhist countries that this person will feel the benefit of that if we do something meritorious and offer offer it up to them. The teaching is that when you do this, when you share your merit in this way, the very sharing of it is such a good thing that you get more merit. So there's no way for that to deplete it. It's on the list of things that are meritorious. And I used to look at that and think, well, how does it do that? You know, you just gave it away. How does it grow? But that's like happiness itself, which is not a limited commodity that somehow has to be rationed out and get conserved or will lose it. Our supply doesn't get depleted. It doesn't go away. It simply grows. Because we begin to understand that the source of it is limitless. It has no boundary. And so we can freely offer. And then perhaps most obviously, the quality of sympathetic joy needs to be joyful. Something that I believe was quoted earlier in the retreat is when the Buddha said, Rapture is the gateway to nirvana. The example that's used to try to somehow depict this sense of rapture is the difference between what happens when a, a very overly sophisticated, jaded person receives a gift and kind of in a very distant manner says, oh yes, you know, thank you. The difference between that and giving a gift to a young child who grabs it and runs around the room, just really happy, laughing, overcome with delight, that child is rapture. It's that enlivening force, that vitality. It's our gratitude and our faith and our concentration and our mindfulness, all of that being awakened in that moment. So to some extent, the quality of mudita depends on our ability to take delight in things, to actively rejoice. Once again, we often talk about this in terms of 
being able to rejoice in our own goodness, to be able to rejoice in the good things that we've done, the times that we've been generous, or the times when we've been careful, you know, when it would have been very, very easy to tell a lie. But we took the time and made the effort not to. Things like that. Times when it would have been easier to hurt somebody, but we didn't. These are very significant times in life in terms of what it implies about our values and our dedication. And we should be able to rejoice in that. It's not a question of conceit. It's not a question of egoity. It is like taking delight in goodness. Even some things that we do that seem austere, like renouncing something or giving something up, they're all done because they free the mind, all of these actions. And they open us to a wellspring of happiness that perhaps has been hidden. Or maybe it's a different kind of happiness, or it's on a deeper level from the happiness we've known before. And we can take delight in that. We can begin to view our actions in this light. The things that we give up and the things that we choose are all about our happiness. They're about growing. They're about yielding. They're about opening. They're all about happiness of a much deeper kind. Sometimes we cultivate this ability to rejoice, to take delight. We can actively reflect on the good things that we've done and pull our minds away from that tendency to just go over and over all the miserable things that we've done and all the mistakes that we've made. You can try it. The next time that you sit, you can begin the sitting with five minutes of just calling to mind the good things that you've done. You might feel embarrassed. You know, you might feel a whole variety of things, but try to do it just for five minutes. We also cultivate this ability to take delight by also learning how to pay attention to the little things in life. We pay attention to the little things in our practice as well. It's like we may know and be very concerned and and quite upset about the fact that this planet is in a very severe ecological crisis, but we can still take the time to appreciate a flower that is pushing up through some cement. It's just growing. It's managing to grow there. It's found a little crack, and it springs forth. We can feel some happiness about that. There's a type of quiet, almost, to be able to notice the little things, to appreciate them, to change perspective for a time. It's a way of rest. It's a way of being in the moment. Just to be in this moment is a kind of joy or appreciation, which is very renewing and it's very refreshing. And in order to cultivate this ability to take delight, we also have to let go of guilt about our own happiness. We have to actually let ourselves feel joy. Certainly there's some kinds of happiness that we experience in our lives that isolate us. They make us feel disdainful of other people and their suffering. They make us feel disdainful of ourselves and our own suffering at other times. 
But other than those which are not really what we would call genuine happiness in this context, other than those we experience many, many moments of happiness in life when we're not getting more cut off, we're getting more open, we're getting more connected, we're getting wiser in our choices. We can trust these, we can take delight in these. It's very powerful to see our own happiness as a perfect expression of our primary motivation to come to peace, to gladden the mind. Even a state of compassion has a certain component of of bliss actually within it because of the power of that openness and the power of that feeling of union when we feel strong compassion. The sense of harmony grows in one's heart when we're feeling compassion even though what we're looking at is other people's pain. Because of that tenderness and because of that openness and the power of the concentration, even though we're looking at other people's pain, there's often a great deal of bliss or joy in that experience. It's not removing us from others. It's only allowing us to come closer and closer. And so we can be very happy about that. Sometimes people feel very guilty when they do compassion meditation and they begin to feel happiness as though they were taking delight in other people's suffering. Whereas, of course, we're really not. We're taking delight in that power of mind. And we should be able to take delight in so many things. One of the teachings of the Buddha is known as the Mangala Sutta. Mangala meaning blessing. He talked about so many of the different blessings that we can experience in life. He talked about the blessing of having good friends, of being able to associate with wise people. In so many of the commentaries in the Buddhist tradition, when they talk about different qualities that we try to develop in life or in our practice, like equanimity or rapture or concentration, they always mention that one of the great supports for being able to develop this quality, whatever it is, is to have good friends, is to be able to associate with people who are strong in that quality. If you spend time with people who are very balanced and have a lot of equanimity, it's much easier to be balanced. And so it is a great blessing to have good friends. He talked about being able to live a just life and having a good home life. The Buddha talked about a blessing as having a craft or a discipline that we like and that we can do well. He talked about a blessing in terms of having a sense of contentedness, a feeling of gratitude. And even more than that, he said, to have patience is a great blessing. He talked about a tremendous blessing being to be able to be in a situation where we can discuss the Dhamma or the truth. And then far, far greater than that is to be able to live the Dhamma and to see the truth for ourselves. To have some realization of the cessation of suffering is a very great blessing. And beyond that even, he talked about having a mind that is unshaken when it's touched by all the changes of the world all the changing phenomena of pleasure and pain and praise and blame, round and round as it changes. When one moves in a spiritual path, one is really moving in this ocean of blessings which is growing greater and greater. 
the Buddha said that such a one goes everywhere with safety. And the Buddha said, I see the pain in life and I see the pleasure in life. This is actually our practice, to be able to see it all, to see it just as it is, to see what gives rise to pain, what gives rise to pleasure, and to understand our blessings, to be able to feel the happiness of that, to feel the happiness of caring for ourselves and caring about others, which is morality, and to feel the happiness of union and the power of our own minds, which is concentration, to feel the happiness of understanding, to have the confidence and the openness and the peace that comes from seeing things clearly as they actually are, rather than struggling with all of those projections and all of the mistakes that we make from being out of harmony. It's all about happiness, and so we take delight in that. Then another quality of mudita is the ability to share There's something in the Buddhist teaching, in the Buddhist psychology, that is talked about as being the opposite of that. There are two qualities, actually, that are very similar to one another. One is envy, and the other is called selfishness, or miserliness, or avarice. Envy, as we all know, is the inability to endure the success of others, or the prosperity of others, or the happiness of others. When we are filled with envy, we feel more and more dissatisfaction with our own condition. Envy absolutely hates to see happiness in other people. The way it functions is to make the envious person themselves quite miserable. You know the colloquial phrase we use in English, I'm eaten up with envy. I think that describes it pretty well. It's a very devouring state. It has a very destructive quality. And if it grows to be very strong, then it is much easier for us to try to harm in some way somebody we feel envious towards. The other quality, the sense of avarice or selfishness, means the state of concealing one's own success so as to avoid sharing that success with others. It functions to make sharing impossible. It manifests as shrinking or meanness. It's characterized by extreme possessiveness. It doesn't want others to have anything to do with what we have, with some object that brings us happiness, an object of our own attachment. We don't want other people to know about it. We don't want other people to hear about it. We don't want to have to share it with anybody. And it's used to refer to a whole variety of different things, not just material objects, but our homes, our friends, our learning, our attributes such as intelligence or whatever. It's a desire to possess something so exclusively that we begrudge those who have some access to the same quality. We can't stand to see somebody just as intelligent as we are if we're in that state of mind. It causes tremendous pain or unhappiness. We're jealous all of the time because, once again, we're looking around all of the time. In this state of mind, we like to hide what we have and hold on to it so no one else can see it. 
No one else can have the benefit of it. And we hate it when we find somebody who also possesses it. It makes one, as they say in the scriptures, to be without friends. The root of both of these states is having aversion or dislike towards people and attachment to objects. The objects may be material things, they may be goods, or they may be qualities which we objectify as things that we own or possess. Both of these states are weakened tremendously by sympathetic joy. Sometimes sympathetic joy is described simply as gladness, and it functions to uproot envy as the mind fills with that gladness, with that quality of delight. The envy just naturally diminishes. The manifestation of mudita is said to be the elimination of aversion and the elimination of boredom. The first time I saw that in one of the texts, I really pondered that. I thought, well, how could it eliminate boredom? And the conclusion that I came to was that perhaps it eliminates boredom because in a state of sympathetic joy, we have so many more causes to be happy. We see someone else's happiness and we're filled with happiness. And more so, increasingly, so that we're not so bored, we're not so cut off from things, from people. We're touched by things, we're moved by people's experience. We can feel that kind of generosity, and so we're happy. The proximate cause of the nearest arising condition of sympathetic joy is seeing the success of beings. The Buddha said once that the unhappy condition of all living beings is because of the fetters of envy and avarice, which we can remove with sympathetic joy. It's called the mind deliverance of gladness because this kind of happiness is actually liberating. It runs very pure and very deep. And it's contrasted to a state that's mere giddiness, that's just excitement. When we do the sympathetic joy practice, as we began last night, we start with somebody that we care about a great deal because it is much easier to feel sympathetic joy for somebody that we love. It may be hard anyway, but it is much easier than it would be towards somebody else if there's that basis of love and friendship. We look for this person, hold a sense of them, and send that, that phrase, that utterance, directed towards them. It's very important as we look for this person, this friend, that we're not looking for absolutely perfect happiness because we may not find that but we focus on some particular gain or source of joy in this person's life. Mudita makes us actually interested in the happiness of others and it allows us to rejoice. So it's much, much easier to begin to develop it towards somebody that we already care about. And then we move through the different categories. It's interesting as we practice it, to think at certain times of someone who's suffering a great deal, to see if we can find within their lives some little happiness, something that is bringing them some satisfaction or some faith about their condition, 
Or maybe there's an opening for change. Some of the circumstances in their life may be beginning to change. If we can focus on that and rejoice over that, then we can be practicing mudita even towards those who are in pain. And as we develop it, mudita serves as the balance for compassion in our hearts. It keeps compassion from being overwhelmed, broken by the experience of suffering and the extent of suffering and the duration of suffering in this world. Mudita soothes the mind and eases tension. It soothes the compassionate heart so that we don't feel just overcome by pain. Because mudita energizes, because it brings a great deal of joy, the teaching is that mudita will help compassion to be active. We can take the joy of that mudita and use it to help translate an inner compassion into an act of service in the world. And in another way, compassion also balances mudita so that we don't forget the pain either. We don't start to build barriers, confining ourselves to only being open to a very narrow segment of life. It will greatly widen our sphere to develop these two together. Mudita will also strengthen metta because as mudita grows, what we see is that other people's happiness is our happiness, that they're not different. And sometime earlier in this retreat, I told the story about how when I was first practicing metta, and I got to the point where I was asked to develop metta, to try to develop metta towards an enemy or a difficult person, I started to go through my list, and I would come to a person and I would think, well, I don't want to send them metta, because if I send them metta and they actually start feeling better, I wouldn't like that. You know, that's why they're on that list, is because they're not the people I want to feel better. And so I'd get to the next person, and i think, well, I don't really want them to feel happier either, so, you know, they, they won't work. And that is in some ways a very common mind state, to feel that we will somehow lose if other people are happy. But as mudita develops, what we recognize is that other people's happiness is our happiness. It doesn't take away from us, even if they are people we have difficulty with. And that allows us to continually open, to really want other people to be happy. And metta strengthens both mudita and compassion. It imparts to both of these qualities its selfless nature, its boundless nature, so that we can extend the feelings of mudita or compassion, not just to those whom we know, but also to those whom we don't know. We extend that openness of heart, not just to those who are suffering, but also to those who are happy. And not just those who are happy, but also those who are suffering. We wish for beings wherever they are, May they be free from danger. May they be peaceful. Mudita can keep compassion from falling into brooding about pain in the world. And compassion can keep mudita from degenerating into some kind of sentimentality, not wanting to look honestly at the world. So in this way, they all add to one another. They all strengthen one another. And mudita particularly will serve to brighten our minds to bring us happiness. And because of that, that brightness 
it will bring a lot of joy to our perception. We can see that happiness more and more. And just that way, as they each support one another, they all support us. As we practice it, it unfolds a different level of being able to take delight, to be spacious with things, to be able to face all kinds of situations within ourselves and outside of ourselves, and to move along that path of ascending blessings. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.